Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019, Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots? A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? Episode 9, Who's Taking the Risk? Sad to say, it seems to be becoming a pattern with the history. I lost a little bit of audio. And in Episode 8, Your Changes, Our Changes, somehow a piece of audio um, came up missing. And they were really some important changes that we wanted to talk about. But I truly believe, after talking with Doug, that it was a blessing in disguise because we now have Pat here and um, we have some other information that has come up and we want to share. So we're going to dive into some of the changes that we think are really important. And one of the big ones is the radios. So, Doug, we um, talked about when we were originally starting our investigation and heading out to Yarnell, how structure firefighters have panic buttons or some type of button on their radio. Yeah, um, we, there's a panic button on the radios for may, what they call a mayday call. If you or someone, a firefighter, is trapped, you hit the button and it actually opens up a channel, keeps that channel open so that uh, no other radios can break in on that, can, can override that, that radio communication you're having. Okay, so Pat, you are currently a structure fire also. Have either you or Doug, have, have you ever experienced that? I, I mean, I hope that you guys have never had to press it, but does it really stop communication? Do people, do you get trained on it? Do you really hear? So I, I think a good way to think about what it actually does is it holds the radio channel open on whatever radio it was pushed on. And a lot of them will also be able to transmit which radio that's coming from. So if Doug and I are working on a structure fire and say I'm inside and for some reason I have to activate my alarm, my mayday button, Doug can look at his radio and his screen and say and see that it's coming from my engine and I'm it's my radio. So he'll know that all right, Pat's in there, you know, it'll say my engine name and and which radio it is. And then he'll be, okay, well, I know where those guys were at, and now they're hitting an alarm, so it'll give them a really good clue as to, you know, what our location is, and like I say, it holds that radio channel open, so whatever I have to say or whatever's going on around me, you know, they'll be able to hear. So that would be perfect on a wildland crew. Uh, you know, again, let's let's use Yarnell as, as a situation, and, you know, there they were, trying to contact over the radios, if they would have had that situation, they could have pressed that button. And like you said, people would have seen. Blue Ridge was listening to the radios. So Blue Ridge would have seen that it's, uh, you know, Granite Mountain, it's um, Eric Marsh, or it's Jesse Steed, or, you know, whomever was carrying the radios at the time. They would have seen that. And maybe even have location, locating devices on there. Oh, okay, they're at this coordinates. Yeah, it makes sense. And the uh, just thinking about all the times that, in, in Granite Mountain scenario, how many times they had to change channels. They were trying on multiple channels to get through to anybody over and over. Um, that's minutes wasted that they could have, been, could have had an open channel with somebody. Right, and... The way we know that they were looking over channels is because of that one aerial research study and we heard the radio signals in the back. So we heard them calling on each channel and they would notify and say... That in Blue Ridge said they could hear them on other channels. Yes, in in their interviews, they were saying. So it can't be that much more costly to have the type of radios that Structure Fire has for wildland, can it? I, the structure fire radios are cheaper. It's the, getting that technology into those King radios, I think. Well, you know I hate the King radios. <laughs> I know other people really like them. I think there's better technology. Use your cell phone. Right. right? I mean, uh, the King radios, 
for me, they're awesome because there's so many options you can do on those radios. Mm-hmm. If you're trained on them, you can change tone guards. You can, you can program it to anything, anywhere in the country. You can get, you can get any channel. Um, they're pretty awesome in that sense, but it would be nice to have some kind of panic button on there. And I don't know what that would what that would be. I mean, in reality, it can't be. It couldn't be that difficult to put that in there. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be just like having a primary or a scan button or anything else along the way, high, low frequency, um, just adding a button yeah. that you know alerts to whatever channel it's set to. Well, and um, I've heard that the, not everybody carries on a crew. <laughs> that sounded odd. Nobody, <laughs> not everybody carries a radio on the crew. Yeah, I, when I worked on the engine crews, we would all have radios, but when I was on the hotshot crew, I was actually shocked that no, not everybody did, but it, it kind of made sense because, you know, not everybody all, always needs a radio, but in an emergency situation, how hard would it be? There, It's not hard at all to have a radio. Um, it, it's, it's an important thing, and also um, the training on it, I... Um, I know myself on some downtimes at stations, I'd asked a few times on how you program the radios and was told you don't really need to know that. I know that the, you know, the soup and the captain and the people above me knew how to program the radios, but I also know that possibly some of the people I was asking that should have known how obviously either didn't or didn't feel comfortable in that knowledge on telling me how. So it's curious how many people might be running around that actually do not know how to program, and they just sync their radios, which like Doug was saying, it just pulls somebody else's programming in, and if they programmed it wrong and you needed to change it and you don't know how, you've just transferred their mistake to your radio. So. And that seems like what happened in Yarnell. That's probably the reason that a lot of people couldn't communicate with somebody synced up with... A- bad radio and then started passing that around. Well, I have sat in on some uh, radio training class and I'm sure that the instructor really cared. He was a nice gentleman and the students were there to learn, but honestly it was um, so boring I was almost falling asleep. And you know, there were people looking on their their phones. I mean, it it was a training and it was just on the radio, but it was not I'm um, engaging. It it wasn't hands on. It was it. I th- I thought it was kind of sad, um, and that came up. Um, Doug, when the families were taken out on the staff ride, and Andrew's older brother TJ, who's in the military, said, "You know, they need proper training. You know, you can't just hand somebody a radio and expect them to understand how to work it. They need to know how to work it." And so, I think again, that's one of those classes people should be required to go through if, if you're going to carry it. Um, you know, so we talked here about the panic button, uh, radio training, uh, and we touched bases with that tracking. You know, it's, um, that radio needs to be able to be tracked. It needs to be able to give its information. And one of those ways is to have somebody specifically at IC Command that um, tracks and knows where the, the crews are, what's going on. That's their whole objective. But we also talked about recording I, all of the radio traffic, that that was something that came up. You know, in an, an airplane, when the black box was first introduced, pilots were picketing. They didn't want to have that any recording. And now we find out that that's a fantastic thing, and pilots love it. I wish that there was something in every IC command like a black box that recorded. And, you know, then every 48 hours, if it's not needed, it could be dropped and re-recorded over. But we need to hear what's going on. We need to be hear what's said. What do you guys think about recordings at IC command? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I think it's crazy because... They'll pay $2,000 a day for a hand wash station, but we don't have the technology in the camp to, to listen to the uh, radio traffic from the previous day. And all that stuff can be so valuable, even if there's nothing tragic that happens, you can use it for, you know, all right, what was that trend on the weather? What was it then? What did it do this time of day? Hey, what did that guy say about 
fire activity in this drainage. You know, when they're going through their ops meetings and their planning meetings, like all that stuff could be super valuable, but for some reason it's just been overlooked is what it seems like. Do you think it's overlooked? Do you think it, I mean, I'm, I understand being nervous. Some crews don't want to have be tracked at all because, you know, they're a little nervous about where, you know, knowing where they're at the whole time or having their voices recorded. What, what do you think, Doug? I, I can't imagine people are that nervous about it nowadays. I, you know, every job, if you're getting paid, they're going to, they want to know where you're at. Yeah. Everything's recorded too. I mean, yeah. somebody's always has a cell phone running or a video or like, it doesn't seem like there's ever an incident anywhere in the news anymore that is not recorded on a cell phone. So I think everybody is aware of it. I truly believe that it's been overlooked. I mean, I don't, I hate to say this, but I don't think that the wildland community as far as like overhead and whatnot is ahead of the game enough to think that, well, we really can't have that. We don't, we don't want our conversations recorded. I, I just think that it's been overlooked in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for some people, too, if they knew they were being recorded, maybe they would do a little bit better job communicating what they would need to be communicating. Mm-hmm. If they knew it was going to be a recorded message, then they would make sure that their message was going through properly. Well, there certainly is responsibility that goes with that. I mean, yeah. you'll certainly know who might not be doing their position as well. Right. But isn't that something you need to know? Right? Hope <laughs> Doesn't so. that make Absolutely. sense? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so... The radios, Doug likes the King radios. I despise the King radios. Um, we wish there was tracking on them. We wish that we could record. We, um, more importantly, is that panic button um, and better training. So I think that's pretty good. Well, I think that uh, tracking, too, while we're on that, we, I mean, that seems like an, a, a big issue. If they don't know where people are and there's going to be some kind of... You're always out there fighting fire in the worst time of year, right? It's always going to be the big winds are coming, it's getting drier, it's getting hotter. It's always going to be the bad stuff is coming, but we don't, we're not tracking anybody or we don't have somebody specific to that. I don't know. Well, I, I think, I, to be honest with you, I think it would be such uh, a benefit as it would be so much more efficient if you just had one person tracking because I don't know how many times we showed up to a different division or a different piece of line. So find, one person at IC Command tracking? Well, one person or several people. I mean, oh, okay. on, on major fires, like you're going to have to have several people tracking. Because okay. you have thousands of people out there, right? So I think it would be a huge advantage, not just for the safety factor, but efficiency of the fires. Because I don't know how many times we'd show up on a fire and they're like, hey, you're going to be the lone people on this section of a line. And then we show up, and there's three other hotshot crews there, and there's enough room for two hotshot crews, and then you have two that are just waiting for an assignment. Okay. So, it, I mean, if if the resources were used more efficiently, and you just had one person that was just like, all right, we have six crews down in this area right now, mm-hmm. they would be able to, like, you know, be a lot more efficient. Get a hold of those guys. Do you really need six down there? When all that person is doing is tracking, then you add in the safety factor to it, you know, hey, fire's making a push here, and you have three hot shot crews, you have seven engines, you have two water tenders, and you have a shuttle running people and tools back and forth. They're going to know exactly who's down there, accountability. Like, Instead of just thinking there's one crew down there. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I just find it hard to believe that, that this hasn't happened already. I, I'm, I, I just don't even get it. Well, it seems like, I mean, to be honest with you, it's just like for us in a structure fire, we go to a structure fire, we have a safety officer, and... He's accountability or the, the BC's accountability. You know, we go into the hot zone or into an IDLH environment and they've got a power board that has our names on it and who's inside and who's out. That's your safety officer. Right. Now, sometimes, wildland sometimes firefighters a, move without the safety officer. That's one of my big bitches <laughs> is the safety officer needs to be there before a crew moves. We, we talked about that in episode eight and I ranted, so I won't right. rant in this episode, but... Go ahead. Right. So, I mean, if, if you had, you know, these people that are just able to track this stuff, um, I, I think it'd be super efficient and a lot more safe. Yeah. So super efficient, save money, um, protect equipment, ultimately, because, you know, let's get real. This is a government entity and all you guys are shovels and Pulaski's and chainsaws. You're not human beings um, always. Um, and then if somebody gets hurt, you know where they're at. Um, I don't know how many times I've heard so many stories. And Doug, 
you've heard the stories, because we've talked about it, where someone will get hurt and it takes them days to find them. The young man in New Mexico that his ATV rolled on him and he bled out. It took him days to find him. That, that's When a 17-year-old girl can be tracked by her father, a wildland crew member can be tracked. They can, you know, there's, there's purpose to it. On the Yarnell Hill fire, um, Kevin Wojak's dad knew exactly where Kevin was because he was looking at his cell phone and he was tracking him and they would talk about the where they were at in the fire. Here he is sitting in, you know, Long Beach, California, and he knows where Kevin is. And we have IC Command that claims they didn't know where the crew was. That's nuts. That's absolute nuts. So we also have... Um dispatch on a lot of forest uh, forests across the country I know at least in, on Prescott they don't they're not open 24 hours a day like a like a fire or police dispatches they they close down during the night um, so they basically work Monday through Friday or, or you know yeah they have set hours um, a set schedule and um, in the evenings a lot of times there's not there's fires going on still people are spiked out on fires during the summer working on smaller fires usually around the um, around the forest but there's not necessarily a dispatch officer in the dispatch and nothing and the dispatch is who you call to get equipment you get other crews you I mean dispatch is kind of the rung in the middle of the wheel right yeah, yeah. and I think a lot of times they would like send a radio home with somebody so there'd be somebody that you could contact right but um, if it was an emergency, if you had an emergency out there, if the crew, if something happened to somebody on the crew in, in the night, um, who do they call at that point? Mm. Pat and I were talking, they probably just call uh, fire dis uh, our dispatch, the fire department dispatch. Well, like 911, you yeah. mean? Call okay. Yeah, you know, call 911 or, or, but they're going to be so confused about their location or how to get, get to them and... Uh, oh, because it's not a street address, so you can't say... One, two, three, four, Fair Street. Right. There's a fire. You're out third hill from the left. I mean, how do you direct? How how does dispatch? I, I think now if they if you called on a cell phone, they'd be able to find your location as long as you were talking with them long enough. But if there's no cell service and you're just using radio communication, I would I kind of doubt that our fire dispatch would be able to find them without like specific directions on how to get there it would, it would definitely be a struggle i mean you could use you could use gps locations and then they're going to turn around and, and send that to a fire unit and then they're going to try to plug it into a gps but there just seems like there's so much information that would get lost in translate translation at that point that uh, it, there's no doubt it would be a struggle to get that done and if it's an emergency you know hotshot crews rely on themselves more than anybody and yeah, and also I, I worked for a short time on the local EMS dispatch um, through the private ambulance company here, and there was a Forest Service map on the back wall, and your headset that you were attached to wouldn't even extend that far, so you could walk over to look at it. So if you didn't know the area, you know, like I did, you if somebody called with something out in the middle of nowhere you would be hard pressed to get um, a, a dispatch in the in the, either the EMS or local fire 911 to really track that down. And I know things have gotten better with that since I was there because that was a long time ago, but it, it's ridiculous. But you know, this is a simple change. You have somebody there during fire season 24 seven. If there's yeah. a crew out working, there if there's, be yeah, in if there's a crew out, there should be somebody in dispatch. And, and also, you know, it's, it's not only for fires as well. Um, you know, I find it alarming that dispatch closes at four o'clock in the winters, um, because nothing ever happens before six o'clock at night. You know, people aren't out with illegal campfires at four. You know, um, people aren't misbehaving at three in the afternoon. Um, you still have volunteers, which I find ridiculous for the Prescott Forest, that are closing trailhead gates 
and they're just volunteers that are closing gates at seven o'clock at night and you've got weirdos out there and this is just a volunteer that's out there doing the job that a paid forest service employee should be doing um, it's not safe so there's safety factors for a lot of things mm-hmm. in regards to having dispatch open later somebody you can call and i you know i certainly don't know their pay rate um, range but they're not getting paid ceo pay i mean i'm sure they're just getting basic pay so we're not going to break the bank here by keeping a person in dispatch so don't give me a budget argument. I think that's interesting. And I, I think um, one of the red, um, glaring red lights here is, and that we haven't talked about is fire shelters. Um, there are new fire shelter designs out there, um, but yet they're still carrying uh, that fire shelter that grant, you know, didn't, didn't help the crew. Um, but that was a very intense, hot fire. So there have been those burnovers where um, wildland firefighters have survived, but the shelters are pretty inadequate. There is new technology. Doug, you and I um, saw an example, a presentation from a gentleman who designed the fire shelter after the crew because he was so appalled and he came with a blowtorch and a piece of... Um, it was just fabric. It was basically. fabric that he had his spray on. And he stood there while he was talking to us with that torch on the piece of material with his hand on the back. And he stood there for m- five minutes? I mean, it was... Cr- yet, he couldn't even get his shelter shown to the um, Forest Service. Yeah, because he was just as t- showing us because he was hoping we'd be able to get him... I don't know how he thought we would be able to get into the Forest Service somehow, but, you know, if, if the, all the Forest Service are going to let, like, three people who they deal with do their testing and not allow it, open it up to everybody, they're just going to get inferior products over and over and over. Constantly. Yeah. And I know the big thing was weight, and I, I understand that, especially if you guys have to hike in far, you have to worry about weight. Um, but I don't know. I think I would beg you guys to carry a couple more ounces to have a shelter that would protect you or am i am i completely wrong here no i would carry it in a heartbeat well i even think if they opened it up to more people they could they could get it to weigh less and be more productive probably you know if they open that up instead of keeping it closed off to other opportunities make it competitive Right. You know, I know NASA is working on um, designs. I know Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University is working on better shelters. There's a lot of people out there, but everybody is hogtied by the fact that they only look at a a couple of manufacturers, and that's it. And those couple of manufacturers are giving us what we had in Yarnell. Um, And, you know, we've heard that kind of thing that if you have to use your shelter, it's really a location device, it's really not a protection device. That's, pr- that's pretty sad. That's pretty sad, I think. Um, well, yeah, I mean, nobody wants to be caught in that scenario where they have to use it. Right. But, you know, obviously no one's going to leave their friend if they're injured. You're, you're going to stay with them and you, you might have to get into a shelter. I mean, it's just the way, you don't know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. but you might have to use it someday. Mm-hmm. Now, neither one of you... None of you have ever had to pull your shelters, have you? No. No. Well, thank God. I'm, I'm happy. Other than the training, and again, I watched a fire shelter training at an academy, and my first thought was, where do you ever lay down on a nice flat piece of grass to deploy your fire shelter? Um, and so I do believe you do get training when you're out on cruise in the real world, right, on how to pull your fire shelter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, on the cruise, you'd be hiking up a mountain, you know, just getting your physical training, and they'd say, okay, deploy, you know, and you've just hiked, your heart's racing, you know, they, they do do that, mm-hmm. you know, to make it more real. We did it, I mean, when we were on the cruise, it seemed like we did it, you know, once a week, it seemed like. We were always doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. It was just Can you say that again? Because, you know, people have said that Granite Mountain were, were not trained well. So could you say that again? 
loudly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, you know, when people say that, with, that they weren't trained well or something, it's an easy excuse to not pay attention to the facts and to not to just move along and well it's they 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 weren't trained well they were new so they weren't they hadn't been along in reality that crew had a lot of people there that were very seasoned and they had a lot of training under their belt Mm -hmm. um but they were the new guys and they weren't forest service so you know there's a different look that intimidates people the reality is we trained nonstop, and in my experience it seemed like crews that were not part of Granite Mountain, guys that came to us were shocked at the amount of training they got as a booter, as a new person, as the new guy on the crew that's just supposed to sit in the back and pass waters to the front. You know, they were surprised by how much training they were getting. So as far as the fire shelters go, I mean, we, we practice that all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like Tassai said, when we were out there and we were hiking, all of a sudden, boom, we're going we're gonna to do a deployment drill. Or you just get back to the buggies. Hey, Grab your shelters. We're going to go to play. Whatever it was. It was never like, it's never like you do in the one in, or the one thirty one ninety where you go out to a grass field and to play. Mm-hmm. It was never like that once you're on a crew. See, my like Eric always waited till we were in a cactus patch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or like on the side of a, a steep slope with a bunch of gnarly rocks. And I mean, yeah, that's, I thought that's the way that everybody was doing it because that's what we did all the time. Right. And this crew did deploy well. Their feet were towards the fire. They, you know, I mean, this group stayed together. So the training did show. I just wanted to make sure other people heard that. You are listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you find this series captivating. If you would like to share your two cents please contact either Deborah or Doug at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. Thank you. And now back to our podcast. Uh, A lot of people, we brought up that there are a lot of people that are redesigning fire shelters, but here in Prescott, we have a wonderful school and it's called Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And I think it's because... Um, so many of the people that work there knew a member of the crew that they also have really kicked it up a notch um, as far as doing some training. They are looking at changes in tracking. They are, uh, graduate student programs are looking at biometric bracelets that crew members can wear that will let them know if they're getting dehydrated, if their bodies are getting overheated, but it also contains a tracking device. Um, They are looking at UAVs that will send immediate weather um, to the crews, but also where the fire is located. They are looking at, uh, again, new fire shelters. Um, They're looking at a rover unit that can distribute needed, whether it's first aid equipment or if somebody goes down on a fire to get that person out quicker. And earlier, before we started recording, we had a conversation, Pat, where you were hurt on a fire that when you and Doug were on the crew together, and I was immediately thinking about this rover that maybe could have gone in because, uh, well, tell the story, Pat, what happened to you and then how you got out of that? So we were in Montana, and uh, my assignment was to go ahead with my saw partner, and we were snagging ahead of the crew. It was lodgepole pine forest. So well, explain what a snag is. For so snag, like anybody that doesn't uh, know that, uh, it's a, a dead tree that's still standing. And um, in this part of the forest that in Montana, there were, it was, they were everywhere. I mean, the entire forest was just littered with dead dead and down logs and so my assignment was to go ahead of the crew before the crew got there and to take out those hazard trees. So we had moved quite a ways out ahead of the crew and we had cut a lot of trees at that point and I think there was maybe one more snagging unit that was behind us and we walked up to a tree and you know we did everything that we were supposed to do. Uh, My saw partner he stood back as I walked up and started to do my assessment of the tree what I thought about the tree, looking at the bark, looking at the density of the wood, uh, looking at the lean, all that good stuff. And 
I had decided at the base of the tree that the tree was too dangerous to cut. There was holes littered throughout the tree. Uh, fire had already come through the tree. I just didn't feel like it was safe to be cutting at the base of that tree. So I looked at him and was like, hey, we're not going to cut this one. We're going to move on. We'll just flag it and we'll change our line. Uh, he walked a little bit away while I was watching the, the top of the tree for him as he walked away. And then when he got to where he was safe, he turned to do the same for me. And now, you were watching the top of the tree. Is that the most dangerous well, spot? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just look. I'm at the bottom of the oh, tree. Okay. I'm looking up. You know, okay. I'm, I'm watching to make sure nothing, you know, the big wind gusts are done blow okay. over on him. So when he got out, he turned to do the same for me. He's like, hey, come on out. And when I got, I don't know, I maybe took like two or three steps, the top of the tree came down and landed on me. And I was knocked out for a second and then my saw partner rushed in and he grabbed me and got me out because it was kind of an ash pit and then he radioed off me because I was the only one that had a radio so you know I mean if it would have crushed my mic we'd have been uh, in another problem but so he radioed back to the crew and you know then they got the uh, the medical process started which consisted of a single EMT and making a like a, a litter to carry me out of a, a couple tarps and some sticks and pieces yeah, it was that we such found. A, it was such a dangerous area we couldn't get a helicopter in right there we had to yeah hike hike pad out and had to cut a hella hella spot while we were doing that it was a how far did you have to hike him out seemed like a mile maybe a mile know. and a half so you I had two sticks and a tarp um so you wrapped him up to stop mobility or because you were no, so... No, they took the tarp between the sticks to make it like a, a, a backboard, okay. basically. Yeah. Okay, And then used a bunch of fiber tape. I mean, in reality, it was awesome. Like, <laughs> the way they did it was great. Um, I can't imagine another way that they could have moved me. But, you know, I mean... So does the EMT... You know, that must be pretty interesting to know exactly what to carry because wounds are so different. Yeah, I mean, it's we didn't have like any type of C spine equipment. Um, yeah, you don't, you don't a carry a backboard. We basically, what the EMT carries is like soft dressings. Okay. They, basically, to stop bleeding. Yeah. But okay. at that time, they didn't even have tourniquets. We didn't have any. Yeah. Which a lot of crews still do not have tourniquets. That's a change that should happen. Every crew should have tourniquets, and every crew member should have tourniquets. That's nothing. Yeah, at least the chainsaws for sure. Yeah. So Sawyers don't have tourniquets. That's crazy. They have things that they could probably improvise into tourniquets, but they don't have tourniquets. <sighs> but I, I mean, it, it, I, I, I haven't been on a hotshot crew since 2010, so I don't, you know, I'm not exactly sure what they carry anymore, but I would venture to say that even if, you know, everybody's got a tourniquet on them, it's called their belt, but... I would venture to say that none of them have ever received training on how tight you actually have to put a tourniquet and then you never take it off once it's on, you know? Well, and that's, <laughs> that, that's free training too with that or on um, the national organization of stop the bleed. Mm -hmm. So stop the bleed will come to any station and train them um, on how to put a proper tourniquet on. Yeah. So, uh, one more change people, one more change. Um, so they hike you out, and Doug, you said that you had to cut a hella. Yeah, because we were in that basically snag patch where the whole forest was, so we just had to find an area where the helicopter would be able to land if we could cut the trees out of the way and then just take them out. Um, so I don't, other than tourniquets would be good, um, I don't know what other changes or suggestions might be said here. That rover that Embry-Riddle was working on, where it would go in based on your tracking so that, you know, there's some ways to carry out. But when we were talking earlier, too, that brought up the fact, Pat, you said that when you were in the hospital, and that this has to do with what we said about independent investigations in Episode 8, you didn't particularly care for the investigator that came to the hospital room. Yeah, so, you know, I this was quite a while ago, but I don't remember if it was somebody from the forest or from, like, the regional area or where this person came from.
But they came in and they sat down with me and they started asking me questions. And it seemed like he was trying to lead me in a direction as far as where his questions were going and what he wanted me to answer with. And then at one point, he looked at Eric because Eric had made the drive. They flew me out. Eric arrived the next morning. He got there. They flew, they flew me to Missoula. And uh, we were quite a ways from there. So Eric ended up arriving in the middle of the night. He came in the next morning. And this investigator at one point looked at Eric and said, hey, uh, do you have anything to add? And Eric's like, oh, no, not yet. And he's like, well, then, you know, I just asked you to step outside. And Eric's like, uh, and at that point, like, I was already a little bit annoyed because I felt like this guy was, like, trying to place blame on us when in reality we did what we were supposed to do. Our assessment was clean. We decided the tree was unsafe. We walked away from the tree, and an accident happened. And it felt like they were trying to place blame on us for something that, like, there was really no blame to happen. Like, it was an accident. Didn't then, you say he was questioning you if you knew what the Yeah, tree... I mean, he went through, like, it was, it was really sad in the sense that, like, at that point I was a fairly experienced sawyer. I'd been running the saw on the Hotshot Crew for four years, five years, five years almost, um, and I'd been on a saw team the entire time, and you know I'd done hundreds of tree assessments, walked up, checked the bark, checked the lean, the density of the tree, like all that good stuff. And this person was coming in and like, well, have you ever cut in this area? Yeah, I've cut every year since I've been on a hotshot crew in this area. Like we come and fight your fire every season. I probably cut more trees than you have, man. And you know, then he was like, well, are you familiar with that that particular force? Well, I haven't been on that specific spot before because it hasn't burned but he was insinuating that I didn't know what I was doing mm-hmm. and so I was a little bit taken back by that I was like what is I don't understand where this is going and then he asked me if I was comfortable talking in front of Eric and I felt like he, what he was trying to do is like get Eric out of the room so then he could just come up with whatever conclusion he wanted and no one would ever know what I had to say to begin with mm-hmm. it would just be him and me and everyone's going to take his word because he's the investigator, right? Right, right. So why have another set of ears in the room? So that was honestly like a very short conversation we had with that because when he asked Eric if he would step outside, I looked at him and I said, hey, if, uh, if he's going to step outside, you might as well go too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't like that, so he finished up his whatever canned questions he had and left, mm-hmm. you know, which is sad because it, it doesn't have to be that way. Well, it seems like what they're trying to do is, I mean, place blame on on the people cutting the in that position, but they're the ones that put them in the snag patch fighting fire. Yeah. You know what I mean? Someone else made the decision that we needed to go direct and be in that terrible spot on the snag patch, and that person is the one trying to get out of whatever blame this is. Right. Because that's the bad decision, right? They okay. could fight that fire without going into the snag patch. Well, I think a good thing to look into is how are, th- how are these investigators trained? You know, h- who picks them? What's their training? Do they have a certification in this? And again, I just do not believe they should be investigating themselves because that's when you, when you get the, we have to put blame, we have to find blame because we can't accept the blame. It's almost as if they're told, find the other person's fault. It's got to be the crew's fault. It's got to be the Sawyer's fault. It's, it can't be us. Yeah. That's what it feels like anyway. Uh, we, also, uh, we just got a call from uh, <laughs> a call-in from uh, Vance Weckworth, uh, a f- friend of ours who's... Uh, uh, go ahead, Vance. Introduce yourself. Hey there. Uh, you can call me Vance. And uh, let's see, I've got about 12 years of fire experience, uh, seven of it on a shot crew, and five of it, uh, I finished on a module. And uh, I don't know what a module means. Uh, a wildfire module it used to be known as fire use module. Um, in my case, it was a group of uh, former hot shots and smoke jumpers that all came together. And uh, it's, it's, it's a type one module that's it's mainly a group of people with a lot of fire experience that uh, get put in the middle of nowhere. And uh, you could come up with a plan, and you work hand in hand with uh, um, whoever the uh, manager of that forest or BLM, wherever you're at. Uh, you manage to try to find a way to help return fires natural, um, 
occurring naturally and allowing things to burn more. Um, and you also do tons of suppression, I found out as well. Okay. So yeah. I, I need to remind, too, that as everybody knows, all of these episodes are just being recorded in our living room. And, <laughs> and we, we just want everybody to get, you know, the information out. But that also means that we have Pat that might have to run quickly. And so if Pat needs to leave, he's just going to say goodbye and you're going to hear the door open and close. But we're going to continue the discussion and the um, conversation. So we were talking about, um, Vance, before you came on, we were talking about an incident that happened with Pat and he got hurt by a snag. But why were you even there, Pat? What, what puts you there? So I think it's important for everybody to understand that, like, in that part of Montana, the forest is mostly made up of lodgepole pine and you know it was throughout the drought 07 08 uh pretty pretty rough as far as the drought conditions go and fire activity was was pretty good that time of year and we had just left one fire you know and we had been reassigned for like two days we only had two days of availability left in our season so we got there and it was a fresh start i mean i think it was less than 24 hours old you remember Doug? I think it had been burning for a few days actually and they just hadn't done anything with it until well we'll blame that head on the head <laughs> um, but you know so we basically got there and they said hey we've got another hot shot crew up there I think it was Sawtooth and you guys are going to go meet up with them and we're going direct on it and that's just like that's what the the marching orders were and so basically you know we had a pretty good hike in but Eric was, you know, trying to figure out and trying to gain his situational awareness about this entire fire on the way in because nobody really had was given any great information. But, you know, hotshot crews, we solve problems that people don't know that they have. And that was, you know, kind of our attitude. All right, we're gonna, we'll figure this out. We'll solve this problem. There's another hotshot crew in there. And, you know, working together, we can get this done. So... You know, and we were plenty aware of the snags going in. I mean, on the drive-in, there's snags everywhere. I mean, it was just like the entire forest was littered with them. On the hike-in, it was like, oh, snag on the right, snag on the left. There's snags Isn't everywhere. Isn't it better just to let that burn? What's the point of sending you guys in? Yeah, I, I, I can't speak to that. Um, that's a decision that's made above my head, and I, I don't know what the, the environmental impact or anything like that would be on that forest. I mean, it's probably not worth anybody's life, I'll tell you that much. Mm -hmm. um, but there's so many things that go into it as far as if it's a watershed resource or if it's, you know, there might be an endangered cricket or something, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, it, it seems like stuff like that's more and more common with the amount of drought that we're seeing across the entire nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Doug, like you said, why couldn't you burn out from roads or, you know, have a bigger area instead of sending people in it all needed to burn so i don't know why i i don't know why we were going direct on that fire so vance in your history do how often were you put in dangerous situations for unsavory reasons maybe um uh, you know from my perspective now it was quite frequently um at the time when i when i started my fire career um, you know, I didn't have that kind of, I didn't have the perspective yet. I didn't have that, those, all those slides of multiple different fires and I didn't understand objectives. I just knew I was just supposed to dig from here and they'll tell me when to stop digging, you know, or, and so, you know, I, I feel like when, it, when it comes to say snag patches or all, all these other hazards we, we face, um, you always hear in briefing, you know, the most important resource out here is, the, the human the human resources out here that are you know the firefighters on the line and it's it's just really hard to uh, somewhere in the chain it, it, you know it's there's a, the whole idea of uh, delegating risk delegating tasks where you know somebody's delegating the risk of you know going on the fire line and it's you know and having been in a manager position you know, I never lost, you know, that focus, but I feel like there's a lot of people in there that they're just thinking about work accomplished and they lose that focus of what's the most important value at risk, you know? 
Well, I think I've heard that from a lot of people is that, you know, and, and I think that happens in a lot of careers where it becomes what you're doing as opposed to life. And I know that that's brought up about the Yarnell Hill fire is that it became uh, structure protection. And Doug, we've talked about that repeatedly. That fire became about protecting structure and not really protecting the crews. Yeah. So, yeah. Ugh. So we're here talking with Vance, and he's got um, leadership roles but beyond what, what I had as a firefighter. Um, he's been in, in division, division and, and uh, ops areas, things like that. So he's got a, a different perspective than what I had on fires. So, Vance, you brought up in our conversations that sometimes um, top management, it's, it's a different type of risk than the guy who's working this um, chainsaw or the Pulaski. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think it's something that, you know, I, I don't want to say this is like my, my, my original idea. It's, I think, a culmination of a lot of conversations with a lot of different people and, um, but the, you know, the idea is that you have managers out there that, um, you know, their, their, their idea of risk is their reputation or of public perception, um, or of, you know, the, the acres they have let burn or the, the price tag for the summer and their way of mitigating that risk is calling in a team or a cruise and all these other things to mitigate that risk for themselves. And so it's a, I see it as this constant passing down of risk until you get to those people that are boots on the ground, that they're the ones that their risk is their own life and limb. And I feel like uh, a lot of time that the risk just keeps getting passed down and it gets passed up where, you know, I, I think a lot, is, a lot of us on the line or that were managers on the line, you know, you ask, at what point do you ask those people above you asking you to do these things? Why don't you, why don't they take some of that risk of their reputation or of their their budgets, so that kind of thing? Why why don't they have more of a willingness to take a risk there when they're freely asking all these people to take a risk that would mean, as they always preach in different early season uh, you know gatherings where they come and tell everybody the importance of every firefighter's life and stuff, but then when it comes to it, you know they're just looking at their spreadsheets. And the phone calls they're getting from their senator or from you know public representatives, you know, and that's causing their decisions more so than that perspective of that person that's standing under that stag or right, um, right, you know. That and that makes total sense. You know, that's something that we kind of Doug and I've talked about in earlier episodes that we also saw out in Yarnell. Structures became the main. Uh, that was the important thing and not the crews that were out there. And then IC Command, they were worried about, uh, at one point, they're evacuating when the crew, they didn't even pass weather on to the crew. So, you, you know, you're right. They, they kind of have, um, I, I like your perspective, is that this IC Command has a completely different risk factor. And, you know, some, and there are those people that could say, you know, poor communities don't get as much thrown at them as richer communities do. Um, so that's a whole other can of worms. So we won't touch that one yet. We won't touch <laughs> well, that one. If I can also say, there's, and there's, there's a certain time when you do try to push back and try to push that, that risk back up the chain where you get more of the resistance that when you do that pushback, sometimes they push back down and the, the, the result is your division is split in half and then they put you in a half that is what you want to happen and they put somebody over in the other side that half the division that will do what they want to do and so it's 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 an it's an interesting game <laughs> yeah so they get they get their way no matter what though huh right and that's that's as as the level i got to that's a lot of times that's what it felt like it was you, you knew that if you push back too much you're just gonna they'll find a way around it oh um, you had mentioned one time that uh, that you've been talking change for years. Yeah, so, you know, I went to guard school in 2001. I was a fish tech in the Forest Service, and everybody had to get their, their uh, basic fire qualifications because if 
fire season got going bad enough, they'd call up, you know, people in other facets of the Forest Service to fight fires. So, you know, when I went to that in 2001, uh, you saw that there's people talking about, you know, we're going to start fighting fire smarter. Uh, We used to, you know, you'd hear snacks falling at nighttime is all this terrible things. And, you know, there's nobody ever been in fire as, you know, it opened my eyes. And so, you know, you talk about making a, a big box around the fire where, you know, just because the fire is 100 acres, you know, we can make a box that's 5,000 acres, you know, 1,000 acres, and we're not going to worry about the acreage, the board feet anymore. We're going to start using roads and trails and ridges to box fires in, and that, by, that way mitigating a lot of the dangers that you put people in when they go direct. And so, you know, I, I was learning like this is the new philosophy in the, in the Forest Service. And, you know, you go to you know, 2015 towards the end of my career and people are still going direct. They're still, you know, you still when you have training or sand table exercises, everybody's talking about drawing these boxes and these trigger points. And when it comes down to on the fire line, as soon as you get a lull in the weather, as soon as fire behavior starts to diminish, everybody knows everybody's just waiting for the call come across the radio or for briefing next morning for everybody to say, all right, well, due to conditions, we've decided we're going to go direct. You know, even though you have already implementing the other plans, uh, you know, they decide, you know, let's keep this acreage down and just bump up the, the risk of life and limb because we have this lull in, weather or fire activity where and it's crazy to me you know, too because that that lull and and that's a good time to be burning then you know making right. those big boxes that's the perfect exactly. time to be doing those tactics that's when you make most hay you know it's yeah. yeah and so for me that that was pretty frustrating um because I, I found as i moved up the chain like it i i really found you know like as many people do in other jobs you know you start at the bottom and you think you're gonna have some change when you start moving up, but then you start finding, no, I still have a boss, even though I'm at this level and I'm, I'm still replaceable. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't do it, we'll find somebody else that will the way we yeah. want it. You know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that that's how it is everywhere. There's tons of good managers and there's people that do, they, they, they do keep to that, that the idea that there are more valuable resources out there or there's nothing more valuable than human life and they they're willing to take some of those risks but i still think there's you know i've, I've been out of fire for three years now that you know maybe there ha- more things have changed but um it's, it's hard for people to quit that habit of let's keep this small let's go direct um you know i, I think the idea of it's kind of like you versus the fire where I, I think I had the hardest time when I was managing people and resources as, you know, what do you, is, you know, what do you, t- is it worth me having to talk to somebody's family about, you know, why they lost their life, you know? And for me, it was always like just super hard to like, I slept less as a manager than I did as a grunt because, you know, that's what I worried about every night. Cause I had a hard time, you know, just, ask people to do stuff that I didn't necessarily agree with. <laughs> so if you could, and I know this is probably a really terrible question, but if you could change one thing, you are now a genie. <laughs> <laughs> what would be the one thing you would change? One thing. Uh, I think the biggest thing I'd change is, uh, man, there's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, one, I'd, I'd uh, start, I'd, I'd pay people more I'd compensate firefighters a lot better for the time they spend sleeping out in the dirt every night where you're off the clock where you really sleep in the dirt. But that's for a different <laughs> conversation. Uh, I feel like I, I think just sticking to the idea of boxing fires in using those natural barriers or man-made barriers that are already in place and letting things burn. And if, if people, I always equate it to, you, don't, you know, if a house is built in the floodplain, you know it's going to flood someday. And if you build a house in the forest, you know there's a chance it's going to burn someday. And you can do some mitigation stuff, just like for flooding. You can build dikes and all these, put your house on stilts to help try to mitigate that risk. But I feel like 
if we could change one thing, it's putting that risk back on the public officials, the city managers, um, homeowners. It's like if you're in the forest in your wooded area, you know that someday that's going to burn. And it, I like to put the risk, the you know, delegate the the responsibility back to those people that so people aren't coming in and putting their lives on the line because your house is in a place that's going to burn, you know? Yes, um, yes. I, I often say if, because I live in, in a wildland urban interface, I, if anything comes, I'm going to paint on the top of my roof, let it burn. Just yeah. don't even come here. So, Doug, I'm going to ask you this. I'm surprising you with this one. One thing, Doug. You've got one thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know, like Vance said, there's too many. Um, I think, I think w one thing I'd like to see is if all these changes that we've talked about for these last two episodes were made, if we did do that, if the Forest Service said, oh, let's do these changes, and they came out with a new card saying, hey, these are the things we want on there. I, I don't like the idea. I have a feeling all that would do is put that down on the firefighter again, just like the 10 and 18. It's expected for the firefighter to do all those things. And that's great. They should be able to. But everybody above them should be watching out for those same things. And a lot of those those problems, like communication problems, could be fixed at a higher level than the firefighter has any option of, you know? Right. So it'd be nice if, like Vance is saying, if there was more of a, if everybody on that fire treated that risk as, as or those things as important as the firefighter has to. Right. I think that'd be good. Okay, we're not going to let you off the hook. What's your one change? Um, we already talked about this, but having that rock-solid IC command who knows what they're doing because we've all been the grunt, you know, and have no bigger perspective, and you're putting your life out there and you need somebody that knows what they're doing because they have that your life and everybody else's in their hands. So having that rock solid training responsibility on them. Right. Because the firefighters do an amazing job <laughs> and it's, it's a fantastic thing to work on a crew. You know, you, you, right. you love it. Um, I think just having that person looking out for you is the most important thing. Right. Um, for myself, I'm going to get two because Pat's not here, so I'm going to suck his up. <laughs> and, and I'm going to grab onto um, IC command recording. I want a black box and IC command that records everything. And that recording leads to better radios with tracking devices on them. And then I so want independent investigations uh, I think that that would fix a lot of messes. So we've, we've got some important changes here with a lot of other changes, but I think, you know, and we ended our last episode, Doug, with saying, you know, you and I have been fighting for five years to try and get some changes, and we don't know how. We don't know how to do it. We've, we've talked to senators. We've talked to nonprofits. We've started nonprofits. We've... Um, you know, done everything we can, and there's still, as Van, uh, Vance, you said, you know, you've been talking about changes since 2001, so I, I think it's kind of interesting. All right, well, uh, it's the end of the episode, I guess, and uh, I want to thank Pat and Vance and Tasaya for coming on and talking with us. It's been awesome. Great insights. And, you know, it's it's again, this episode exists because I messed up and lost a little section, but I, I love all of the stories. I loved everybody, what they shared, the information. And, you know, I, Doug and I um, talked, uh, Vance, Tessaia, we all talked. And what, based on what you guys have listened, you have listened now to, this is the ninth episode of Our Investigation, Our Truth, um, based on what you guys have heard, what would you change? So we're throwing that out to you. What would you change? And let us know. 
And that's, let us email us, pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. And let us hear from you, just like we've heard from everybody here. Let us hear what your changes are. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Deborah. Thanks, Thanks. fans. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. You're